Welcome to Mamsie's Manity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with Peter Evers, who is the CEO of Bamsey. It's time for our Ask the CEO segment. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? I am well. A number of things to get to today, and I want to start with advocacy. Um, this is obviously an area which you are very involved in and trying to you know, spur up some more interest within the organization. Um, what's coming up in regard to advocacy and what role do you see the organization having to play when it comes to advocating for specific issues or you know, focusing on a vulnerable population group that very often does not find themselves advocated for strongly enough? Yeah, it's such a good question and, and such an important piece of what we do here at Bamsey, Chris. So thanks for asking about that. And I guess I would begin by saying one of the things we're doing this year is we're bringing an advocacy group together and people from all over the organizations are sort of volunteering to be on this, um, This I, I don't know if it's a committee or subcommittee, but a group of people who are identifying what we should be advocating for. And what I mean by that is, um, going to our legislator, going uh, local legislators, um, and going to um, the executive branch of government, and sometimes going to the federal government to say, here's an issue that we uh, care about or involved with. And um, the big things at the moment, just as you say, are the mental health of America, you know, uh, and what are we doing about providing services for those folks? Uh, but also, the, how are we how are we staffing um, important positions in this agency when they are definitely underfunded by the contracts that we have? Uh, and what are some of those things that are affecting a workforce coming into uh, to work in a field that is tremendous in terms of um, uh, the of what we get out of the work, but not in terms of what we're paid? So advocacy is really important. And it is always true, I think, that if you call your legislator, that is, uh, the legislators see that as 20 or 30 votes, mm -hmm. that this is how people are thinking. So people are always cynical and say, well, you know, when you call your legislator, what good does it do? It gets the attention of individuals, both reps and senators, who are looking to be um, reelected uh, at, the, at the next um, uh, state election and they listen and they care and I will say about the southeast and Worcester where we are uh, located we have a legislative delegations that are, that are really interested uh, in what is going on here and I'll talk about that in a minute but what I do think is that when when our families when our person served and when our workforce and advocate with our senators, it's way more uh, important and uh, makes more of a difference than when our trade associations or even I uh, call and advocate. Getting involved in this process is part of the demo democratic process of, of this country. And things really change when people advocate for that change. So what are we doing at the moment? Well, there's three things that are really on the, on the ballot at the moment, as it were. Um, one of them is uh, yesterday uh, I gave testimony at a budget forum to uh, members of the, of the legislature, both senators and representatives, about housing costs. And in the same 
conversation, we had a, a, a conversation about daycare costs as well, because it's not just that people come to work for BAMSI or for any of the other organizations and have uh, a, a wage which is is low. They're also com they're also competing with a labor with with a, a housing market that has gone absolutely wild over the last two years. Let's talk about Brockton for a minute. The average, the mean price of a house in Brockton in February 10, 2020 was $345,000. In November of 23, that same house was $460,000. Absolutely changed. Brockton used to be a gateway city. Families from all over the world could come and live here uh, for a reasonable price and get jobs that had a career path like a Bamsey um, and live in reasonable accommodation. That's changing, Chris, at the moment. And we need to do something about that or else, you know, workforce and are going to be priced out, out of the market. So we're supporting bills that preserve tenancy for people whose landlords um, suddenly decide that they're going to put up rent by 50 percent. We're supporting bills in the legislature that actually would re reduce the percentage by which people could put up, landlords could put up their rent, thus preserving tenancies for people, not only who we serve, but people who we work for. And also the daycare thing, we didn't testify on this, but we testified in the same um, piece of the forum. Um, daycare costs are now outstripping the amount of money that people can work, that get paid for when they work. And so people have been uh, discouraged from the workforce because of that. We have to put in um, and, and advocate for some help for low-income families to get daycare so they can, that they can actually work. Two pieces of legislation that we're supporting that go directly to our own workforce and making sure that they're getting what they need. Next week, we're having uh, a legislative breakfast with, with our delegation at our day hub uh, in Stoughton. And we've invited the entire delegation for the Southeast to come and talk about the rates that we get similarly in our day hubs and our um, adult long-term residential treatment programs. Those rates determine how much we can pay people. And we have a really good opportunity to say, you've got to speak to House Finance and Senate Finance Committee about properly uh, uh, funding these services, which are expensive services, but they're not paying enough for people to have a living wage doing direct care professional work without having to work two or three jobs. That's not right. We're fighting on that front as well. And the third one, Chris, as you know, as, as and I know, um, people in the United States are really struggling with their, with their mental health at the moment. And we are losing on a community level um, the ability to pay clinicians a competitive wage with all of these now online services, and you only have to put the radio on for 20 minutes to hear a BetterHelp or Mindspace commercial where uh, clinicians will, you can book in to see a clinician for 45 minutes for uh, a cash-only payment. Um, that is pulling people away from where the real work needs to happen, which is community-based behavioral health services with wraparound services that BAMSI give. If we don't have the people to provide that service, our community is really going to struggle. So we are really pushing our legislators to make sure that our clinics, and of course our clinic is Whitman, are well-funded 
that can attract nurse practitioners and licensed clinicians to give the care that is needed face-to-face -to, -face to members of our local community and not have those people pulled away to be an online resource for Texas or whatever it might be. Behavioral health is local, and we need to be able to support local provision of services through reasonable rates so we can pay people to keep them. Those are the three things that we're really concentrating on at the moment, and they all go to making sure that our staff are adequately paid and our person served are getting what they need to remain in their communities. So a lot there. Um, I want to start with the advocacy piece. And you know, a lot of times folks, as you mentioned earlier, do feel that their voice is not going to be heard um, when it comes to lobbying um, their elected officials. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Now, if it comes to you know reaching out to your congressman or woman or your senator, U.S. senator, or the governor, yes, you are not going to be heard. Uh, you're going to be passed along to a, uh, an individual that's going to pretend to take down your, your name and number <laughs> and all that. But when it comes to talking to your local officials, uh, your local state senator, uh, your um, town officials, city officials and local reps, they don't really hear from anybody. Like everybody thinks that you just call the governor. Or the, no, um, the way that you get things done is by speaking directly with your elected official, because those folks don't really hear from anybody. And as Peter mentioned, when they hear from a constituent, they assume that that's, and if they hear from two constituents or three, they assume that that's how people feel in the community. And they will take action as a result of that. So, more and more big-time uh, nationwide lobbying efforts have realized this. They've started to infiltrate the state houses and the towns and the cities because that's how you move votes is by talking to the folks that don't really hear from all that many people. Yeah, when you lobby the governor, you're – voice is basically never heard unless you're talking to the governor directly in Massachusetts that's not going to happen maybe in New Hampshire Vermont or Maine it would um, but yeah. that's the key when it comes to advocacy and I think it just wanted to highlight that point the other point that I wanted to make was in regard to individuals um, of developmental disability and I was speaking with a young man who lost his uh, brother after a, um, a long uh, battle with an illness and his brother was disabled and you know, he has become an advocate because he, he sees a society that completely forgets individuals who um, have developmental disabilities and need access. And he looks at, you know, popular culture and there's a whole bunch of other, you know, um, inclusive aspects of, public, of, of pop culture. And it still is that individuals with Down syndrome and disabilities are left behind when it comes to popular culture. So I thought that was a really interesting point that I wanted you to um, to talk about, where it seems like you know, there's a lot of efforts when it comes to inclusivity, but it still feels like those who are um, dealing with uh, developmental disability aren't being included. You're absolutely right. And, you know, when we talk about the, um, diversity, equity and inclusion in our organization, we always take care of saying it is a very wide swath of people we're talking about and people with disabilities have to be in the forefront. It's what we do. It, it's what we do, Chris. We, we take care of and provide services for people who um, are 
forgotten uh, by popular culture. And, you know, you know, that is, and when you speak to people who, I spoke to a person who was wheelchair bound a few weeks ago, um, and they said that there was a show on the television and it was a comedy um, and, that, and one of the children in the show was in a, in a wheelchair. And, and he said, it just felt so good to, to, felt, right. to feel represented. It felt so good to look at a TV screen and see somebody who was in the same state as, as they were. And, and they could connect in a way that was, um, uh, that was really meaningful for that individual and pushing for that, pushing for a society that is inclusive in every way. And, and when you think about, you know, television when you think about radio those are the mediums that reach the the masses if you like and yeah there'll be people who say oh you're just pandering by having somebody with a wheelchair well that's a family that probably doesn't have somebody with a disability and um you know uh it is it's always interesting when people become interested in these things when they're dealing with, with it themselves we need to broaden that circle of caring if you ask me so that that people are more understanding of inclusivity even if they're not touched by it um and i i, I really think that's a good point because i think it it it, it really does have a broad, a broad spectrum and you know just going back to that advocacy thing and uh, you and i've talked about this before but um it is you know you sort of do get to the governor in a way by going through your uh, right. your local rep. and that's the best because, way to do it you're absolutely right you're not going to call yeah. on the governor. not going to get it done. But if you have a representative who they may, the governor may need for a vote on something else, and that representative is saying, I'm hearing from my community that we need to raise the wages of essential workers. And, th- and then they're like, well, okay, th- th- if, you, well, if you vote for this, then that that's how you get to the governor. You're not going to, by calling the governor, no. But by, by absolutely, by talking to that local official, you're going to be able to move stuff. Yeah, and a good example of that is that um, I'll be meeting with Rep Sullivan, with Rep Cassidy, and Rep Dubois, and and also uh, Senator Brady, um, and it, because you know it's it's budget time, and the and the plan is that then those reps will talk to Chairman Mikeowitz, you know, who is uh, overseeing the budget, and the three of them go to him. It's like, well, that's three reps that have come to me asking me the same thing. Um, they then have the influence that you're desiring. So I think I think it is true. It, it, it's great to have a tactic. It's great to have a strategy. And it's great to remember that, you know, as a representative, they're hearing from hundreds and hundreds of people. We just have to make, make sure our message is succinct and clear enough and coming from enough people that they're swayed to think this is more important than another issue. And I'm sorry, but that happens to be the way that it works. Yeah, let's move on to some of the uh, the stuff that we have from um, folks within the Bamsey community. And you talked a little about it. there's still you know, concerns about employment and uh, positions being unfilled. What's the, the sense about um, what type of direction the organization is moving in there? Yeah, I mean, we continue to struggle with filling positions and program managers and assistant directors and our staff who are working doubles and who are working a lot of overtime of bearing the brunt, the brunt of these vacancies. The labor market is showing signs of um, pinching a little bit. Um, and I hate to say it, but uh, sometimes the downturn in the economy is not such a bad thing for unemployment. We're in an unbelievably unusual situation at the moment. 
Chris, you'll know more about this the, than I because you talk to so many politicians, but it's very rare that you see an economy like this at the moment where we are looking at a recession and yet unemployment figures remain remarkably low. And so what's happening in the country is that there's a realization that um, our productivity isn't what it should be, but we're not getting people back into the uh, into the workforce to do the work. And inflation remains relatively unchecked, although I think it's beginning to, I, I think today, uh, recently we're going to hear about another hike in interest rates, which is going to have an effect on the economy relative to borrowing. So all of those things are related. The bit that, that I think economists can't work out is why aren't people coming back into the workforce? Mm -hmm. Why aren't we experiencing unemployment figures that are higher? And I think we heard this week that Amazon has laid off another, what was it, was it 9,000 9, people? Mm -hmm. um, which I think is another indicator that people are coming back into the, will be coming back onto the roles and therefore be looking for employment. We have had in the last four weeks really good numbers in people um, who are orienting on a Monday morning. This week we had 14 people, uh, a lot of direct uh, care professional people. And for three, for four weeks in a row, we've had double figures. That's getting back to the numbers of people who were coming to the organization prior to COVID. I see that as a good sign. Um, I see it as a good sign because a lot of those people are saying, I'm coming here because people have referred me. Mm -hmm. I would, uh, people who work here, there is a referral bonus that is available for people. So I would encourage people to do that. Um, and, you know, we are, really looking at that in terms of our sign-on bonuses. We're looking at um, offering people different incentives for second and third shift and weekends. So BAMSI really is looking at these vacancies from a perspective of how do we make them um, more um, attractive to people, but also the, how is the organization appearing more attractive, attractive to our uh, people in our communities, and we are beginning to see some movement with that. So I'm quietly optimistic about an upturn here. Final thing is actually a question that I have for you, and something I've noticed anecdotally is that post-pandemic, um, kind of across the, the board and different aspects of my professional work, you see individuals having difficulty with face-to-face uh, -face communication. And the fact that, you know, it's it's difficult to talk to, it seems like, for human beings to kind of you know, discuss things with one another and, quote, unquote, get back to where we were pre-pandemic. And a lot of it seems to be kind of uh, generational in, you know, my baseball coaching and, and dealing with some of the, the younger people in my life. Uh, it seems like, you know, there's a different way that they – communicate with one another. And a lot of it has to do with you know, texting, even quick video chats, um, email, and the the person-to-person -person communication isn't there. So I'm interested in your sense as to what's going on in your world. And also, I mean, are we heading backwards or are old people like me and you going to have to figure out how to adapt in a world that doesn't have that much uh, or as much face-to-face -face communication as the past, where for a lot of people, the preference would not to be to have a meeting where everybody sits in a room unless there's a really good spread. It would be to do it via <laughs> Zoom or to can't we do this on an email type of thing. Yeah, I love the way that you you and I are suddenly in the old category and uh, it's probably 
I'm considerably older than you are. <laughs> so thank That's you. That's how I was being that. kind, yeah. Yes, you're very kind. Um, no, you know, this is a really interesting point because whatever you think about the modern new ways of communicating with them, not going away, right? When you think about when you think about the the supercomputer that people have in their hands all the time. And actually, I was I was watching a sweet a friend of mine had a sweet 16 the other day. Her daughter had a sweet 16 and she came out in this amazing ball gown and looked uh, amazing. And she had a cell phone in a in a pocket in her hand and, and <laughs> was taking pictures. And I thought, yeah, that doesn't resonate with me, but this is absolutely resonating with it, with with a, a different generation. People, have, it has become the absolute norm to communicate via your cell phone through multiple ways of of communicating through that little device. That's not going away. I think, I do think people do have a preference to sit in the same room um, and discuss things. We lose a lot, and you know, this week we've been talking about going back to with our orientation uh, in, a, in the same room with people, with a spread, by the way, um, so that people can enjoy companionship uh, and fellowship uh, and get to know people so that they have a friend as they come into the organization. They've built a relationship. Uh, I think that's important. Um, I do think over the pan- in, in the course of the pandemic, you think about people who are coming out of college you know, who have those college years for people on campus, being on campus was remarkably important as an important piece of the education. You're learning about yourself. You're developing the new you, if you like. These people haven't had the chance to do that because everything's been online. High schools, same thing. It's definitely going to have an effect on the way that we view communication. We have to fix it. We have to put that right. We have to understand um, how we've all been traumatized in a way by our uh, lack of ability to communicate in the ways that we have done in the past. So I think it's a it I think it's both. It's about leveraging great um, methods of communication com- communicating alternatively, being able to have a conversation with your mum who's on the other side of the Atlantic is wonderful, but also recognizing that there is an invaluable um, piece to the, abil- the ability to sit in the same room and read people's faces and laugh with them and enjoy that kind of fellowship. And I look forward to getting back to a time when we're doing much more of that. Yeah, in in conclusion, it's always a proportional thing, right? Where yeah. certain certain generations, you know, may feel different way about different things. And, you know, I think for, for my generation and older, problems are solved exactly the way you described it. But you see the decline in business travel, um, which is substantial. That's all about you know getting in a room together, having some drinks, you know, after your meeting, and building relationships and making making things making things happen. Um, but I feel that again, proportionally, that that's shifting, and I think that m- more people would like to see you know a detailed email in which they can have every bit of information that was discussed. At the meeting versus, you know, some folks sitting around talking and agreeing to things verbally because they got friendly with one another. I just see a shift in I see a shift in that where, you know, we're much more of a data driven, fact based type of world. And I think, you know, more people want to have that written communication. So there's no 
you know, nuance that exists. Yeah. And yeah. I just wonder if, you know, particularly as I mentioned with business travel, like the airports will tell you that business travel is way down. Leisure travel has almost returned to pre-pandemic levels, but business travel is just not not happening. And I think that whether it's the pandemic or just kind of the forced adoption of it, like I just I feel like that for you know millennials in particular, I feel like that's that's changed. And and let's do this via call. Let's have it hammered out in an email. Let me see you know everything that needs to be said. Yeah, I think so. I, I, and again, I think it goes back to you know there might be a benefit to that waste, uh, Chris. As yeah, I'm as not saying it's bad. I'm saying like yeah. Because let's like a lot of times things get lost in communication, right? I mean, if we're just talking, I might forget what you said. Actually, I guarantee yeah. I'll, I'll forget what you said 20 minutes ago. But if yeah. we we hammer out what we want to do via an email and plan and have an object, objective that way, I can go back and say, oh, this is what he this is what he said, and this must be what he he meant. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. We'll see how you know. Does the old school time mechanism of communication disappear with this as well? And, and so we're getting to a point where there's more, um, you know, inclusion, um, where those, you know, there were places where meetings happened where only certain people were, you know, permitted or encouraged to go to. It's a, it's a really interesting prospect, I think, uh, which is another um, changing way of the way of the way we do business in the world. And, you know, let's see where it takes us. Peter, as always, appreciate your time, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks, Chris. This is the Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan.